This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellersley.com to learn more. I'm preparing uh, to do a series, a long, quite a long series on World War I, spiritual lessons from World War I in the upcoming weeks. And so in all my study, when I do that, I have a tendency to have so many illustrations about what I'm talking about, yet I'm not there yet, right? So it's really hard for me. And so I have to admit my title does come from World War I. Uh, and, but it, it, this isn't part of my series for the summer, just so you know, okay? This is a separate thing, and it's really not about this. It's just an illustration in that. Now, I'm seeing so many illustrations, which is why it's always uh, an invigorating thing for me to study things like this, is I see so many, uh, so much low-hanging fruit for sermon illustrations, uh, because when you engage in warfare, it's quite the parallel. And there's so many moments that test the human soul, the metal of the man. And where the man wants to shrink back and run, as opposed to go forward into the dangerous unknown, where bullets are flying, bombs are going off. I mean, yeah, I can understand why someone would want to run and turn and, and, and get out of there. Uh, and yet for us, we need to recognize we're in a similar situation today where we can sense just out of that trench that we're in is gunfire, is artillery shell, is booms going off. And if you just stay where you're at, you may survive. But if you progress forward in this day and age, if you have the audacity to say, I'm a believer, watch out world, we're going to take this world for Jesus Christ, eh, there are consequences to that. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm always attracted to studying these things is it's like I want to put my own soul into some circumstance that tests me, that prepares me, that, that explains to me the dynamic that I'm staring at today. Because everything we're looking at today is unique and different than world history. COVID-19, that's not normal in world history. However, the circumstances of cowing nations, of bringing populace and peoples under the boot of, of strong-armed control is not new. This is all very familiar territory. This is how the devil controls people. And so as a result, we're in an age and a generation where we're being told, even though no one had came up to you and said, you need to be quiet, you keep your faith to yourself. Probably no one walked up to you and just told you that. However, how is it that you know that? And that's how social pressure works. You are being conformed to the image of a culture, but you shouldn't be. We're supposed to be conformed to the image of our Christ, but our Christ doesn't fit with our culture, which means we stand out. We don't want to stand out. I don't want to stand out in a time like this. And this, that's exactly why it's critical that we heed the word of God instead of the word of man in an hour like this. So I really like the, the graphic that, uh, that Annie made for this one. I told her like a World War I battleship. She goes, I'm not finding any good World War I battleships. What about this? I was like, huh, I like that. That's great. Into the Turkish Straits. Uh, so just as, as far as a brief understanding of where that comes from, uh, in World War I, there is going to be a key 
uh, battle, the Battle of Gallipoli, which is going to go south. It's, it doesn't turn out to be a very good uh, situation for uh, the Allies or the uh, Entente. And so it's not necessarily a positive story, but there's an interesting sidebar in that. And that is that Winston Churchill at the time, so he was over, he was the minister of the Navy in Great Britain at the time, he has an idea. And that is because there's this whole clog and the whole slowdown in the war on the Western Front, and it's just trench warfare, and they're not moving anywhere, people just dying in the bunches. And they want to try a new tack to get in from the east. And so if we could just take Turkey, then we could come up and hit Germany from behind. That's a great idea. And they were called the Easterners instead of the Westerners. Let's let's get them from the east. And so in the process, Winston Churchill says, we have all these battleships that are dated. They're, they're basically useless. After the war, they'll just be big wrecks uh, of steel. And so why don't we spend them? Why don't we spend what we have? And let's bust through the Straits into uh, Gallipoli, through the Dardanelles, and let's claim this territory. Let's do it by surprise. And so he wants to spend the battleships. You know how long it takes to just build one battleship? It's like two years. It takes years to design them, then years to build them, and they cost a small fortune. And these uh, admirals have fallen in love with their battleships. And this is what they grew up on as young sailors. And then they took command of it. This is their territory. They, they, They keep it perfect and clean and right and polished. And that's what a sailor does, right? And then Winston Churchill comes out, you know, he's in command. He's over that. That ship is under his command, right? And he says, I would like to spend that. I would like you to use it uh, so that we could win this war. And you know what? All the admirals uh, were not happy with this plan. They did not want to spend their battleships. And yet, what's the good of a battleship? You, you could answer that. What's the good of a battleship if you're not willing to spend it? As long as it sort of sits in dock or sits there, you know, it's like it looks really pretty. But what is the good of it but to be spent? Now, I'm setting you up with that statement because we have a tendency to swab our deck and polish our, our life all up. And we love our life and we love the way it is when it's sitting in dock. However, it is built and designed to be an instrument of war, to actually be utilized when God asks for it. It just makes sense. And yet, because of our mentality in the American system, the Christian can have his life or her life at dock and at port for the entirety of it. And it's never asked for. I mean, there hadn't been a major naval battle, I think, for over 100 years where they had had to even risk a boat. So all of these sailors, which became admirals, They'd never even seen a boat needing to be risked. And so aren't boats just supposed to be appreciated and cherished and kept clean? When in actuality, no is the answer. A boat is built to be spent. And you have been built by God. And your own version of Winston Churchill has come in and he's the minister of the Navy. And he said, I'd like that boat of yours. Could I use it in the Straits of Turkey? And you, know, you could have your own internal battle over this, but that's the key question that's sort of hanging in the balance in this message. So Psalm 37 is what I've spent this entire week looking at and meditating on. And I'm going to give you a, not the whole version of Psalm 37. You're going to notice I have quite a few scriptures out of it. But I, I want us to sort of meditate on Psalm 37 together. Now, to give you a little context for Psalm 37, it's a Psalm of David. And it's written when David is older because he has one line, I think it's verse 25, which is actually going to reference 
that uh, he was young and now he's old. And there are certain things that he has seen in his aged existence. And so it's David writing, and he's an older man. And in, in a sense, he's given us the precepts for how to live in a world that is headed in a wrong direction. How to live in a time period when it appears, listen closely, that evil men are winning. The people that are plotting against truth seem to be thriving. Meanwhile, the righteous are writhing in agony and suffering. How do you reason through that? And this isn't just back in the days of David that this has happened. This is all throughout history where as history is being steered, there are seasons when it appears that the righteous thrive in their position. You know, if you look at World War II, there were times when it appeared that Hitler in all of his malevolence, was winning. And it looked like he was going to dominate the world. And it didn't matter how many times you prayed and how much you resisted against it, he won. Every battle he came into, he just won it. How could evil thrive? Well, you need a Psalm 37 moment. You need to go back to Psalm 37 and listen to the heart of God. What does he say? And what is he saying to us as the church right now? The church is weak we're like off balance. We don't have our ancient stature where we have the growl and the world trembles before the reality that the church is walking in the power of the Almighty. That when we walk, we cast a shadow and people are healed. Eh, I haven't seen much of that, right? In other words, we're not living in a, in a day where the church seems to have its game on. And we, it appears that the enemy has his game on. What he is after, he seems to accomplish. And so many of us have been muttering under our breath. It's like, I can't believe they're getting away with that. In fact, that's one of the biggest challenges I think we face in this country right now is where is the justice? I can't believe they're getting away with that. Hey, isn't someone going to do something about that? It's a Psalm 37 moment. It may appear that the evil around us are succeeding. However, they are like the grass and they will soon fade away. You don't want to be like them because the righteous will endure until the end. So let's, let's just read through a little selection of Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. This is what we're supposed to do. In other words, don't do what the evil do. Don't try and copy the evil. Oh, they're succeeding. I want to do what they do. Whatever they're doing must be working. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Even though it may look like they're succeeding, don't mimic them. Instead, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. Isn't it nice to know that the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints? They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace." 
Now, there's a lot that I threw out. Now, I've been meditating upon this all week, and one thing I could tell you is there's a lot to chew on in this. And so, as I go through this, I'll give some summation moments to try and bring it down into more what we can digest in a singular bite, because I think that's one of the challenges when you unpack a psalm, is there's a lot there. It's the way you feel as a pastor with the Bible, too. It's like, okay, how am I going to convey this to them? And you feel very feeble in the process because so much of it is just spiritually understood. You know those moments when you could read a scripture, you could memorize a scripture, you could repeat that scripture for you know 10 years of your life and then suddenly, 10 years in one day, you're reading the same scripture and you're like, huh, whoa, I get that now and I can't get you to get it. That's, that's the frustrating thing of being a pastor is you can't get them to get it. So I had a week where I was getting something like, oh, this is good. And that's what you have to preach out of. What you preach out of is your getting. And yet at the same time, you can't force someone else to get it. Real frustrating thing. And yet at the same time, that's what causes someone in my position and your position, because we're ministers of the gospel, to submit to the Holy Spirit, to say, God, I can bring something really powerful that's powerful to me, but if I don't do it in agreement with you, according to the power of the Holy Spirit, it's empty, it's hollow, and it's not going to impact anyone. So Lord Jesus, may this be brought by you to our souls. So out of Psalm 37, I'm going to call them clear commands. We could look at this and call them precepts or an outline for success in the day of trouble or the day of darkness. You could do that. I would like to have our souls appropriate these things as commands. It's like the king of the universe is coming to us, the minister of the Navy is coming to us, and we have our British battleship. And God's saying, all right, here's what I want you to do with it. Here's how I want you to handle what I've entrusted to you. So I'm going to go through what we're going to call 20 clear commands out of Psalm 37. Command number one, trust in the Lord. Two, do good. Isn't that an interesting command? If you just separate these out, they're very interesting. Do good. We're like, uh, okay. Do that which is godly, that which God would do. Dwell in the land. That's an interesting one. Dwell in the land. That's a hard one for us to know how to apply, isn't it? It's like, well, he's talking about like the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. We're supposed to dwell in it. Well, I don't live there. I live in America. But what is the promised land to the new covenant believer? It's promise. It's that which he has given us at the cross, that which he has entrusted us through his word. Dwell in that. Abide in that truth. Abide in that reality. Command number four, feed on his faithfulness. What an interesting command to feed, to find your satisfaction and your nourishment in the fact that he will be faithful. Command number five, delight yourself also in the Lord. This was Leslie's favorite scripture since I met her, is delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And that is such a profound thing because the way Leslie would always articulate it is it's not just like, okay, I'm going to delight myself in God so I can get the Ferrari. No, I'm going to delight myself in the Lord. And when you delight yourself in the Lord, his desires become your desires. His will becomes your will. So as a result, you have carte blanche access to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you ask for, you're going to get. Why? Because what you're desiring is what he desires. And so as a result, you delight yourself in the Lord. You find your satisfaction in him, and suddenly your desires are matching 
They're congruent with the king's. So now when you ask, you ask boldly because you're asking in agreement with his kingdom pattern. Command number six, commit your way to the Lord. You ever notice that we can have a way that we're planning on living? You could have a plan right now. And it's your plan, right? Now, you started with it being God's, yours and God's plan, right? You're like, hey, God, I'm really interested. But then as you come up with this plan, have you ever noticed that you can sometimes take it over here? Here's God, but you like have the plan over here. And he says, <clears throat> what do you have there? Well, I have our plan, right? He's like, I think it's become more your plan now. And so commit that to the Lord. Hand it afresh back over. Let him have it. If he has it, it's going to prosper. It's going to flourish. If you have it, it's going to wither. Command number seven, trust also in him. Command number eight, rest in the Lord. Now, this is such a profound statement that rest, first of all, it sounds very hard. Again, for us Americans, rest in the Lord. It's like, what a weird thought that is. We've heard the phrase. We know the phrase. It's a familiar phrase, but it doesn't mean we have any clue how to do it. You know, this idea of rest actually means to be silenced. It means to be stilled. So what do we have a tendency to do when we have a problem in our life? Ah, I need to solve it. And what is the precept here? No, no. Here's how you handle it. You rest. You say, God, I'm going to trust this to you. I trust that you know the circumstances of my life and you have a solution. So instead of me rushing to solve it in my own strength, my own power, my own wisdom, I'm going to rest in you and trust that you are in control right now. Command number nine, wait patiently for him. Command number 10, do not fret. And actually that is, uh, there's a couple of those that come out. I think that's actually the very first one. Psalm 37, one is do not fret as well. Command number 11, cease from anger. Isn't that an interesting one to throw in the mix? You know, like, just think about how some of you have felt as you see evil thriving in our country, as you see injustice just sort of there. Have you ever noticed what it does to you? It makes you angry. And then you can easily go and say, well, this is a just anger. This is like, I'm, I'm angry and I'm not sinning. That's what you tell yourself, right? When in actuality, what you what you're doing is you're going the opposite direction of what Psalm 37, with two parentheses, you see that up there, just to help you emphasize that. But cease from that. Don't allow that to rule your soul. Rest instead. That is something that belongs to God, not to you. Rest. Command number 12, forsake wrath. Command number 13, do not fret. Oh, there's another one. Command number 14, depart from evil. Command number 15, do good. Command number 16, dwell forevermore. Command number 17, wait on the Lord. Command number 18, keep his way. Command number 19, mark the blameless man. And then command number 20, observe the upright. So now what the reason I'm giving that to you is to show you that there is a cause effect type of thing happening in Psalm 37. There's a lot of key scriptures in the Bible that are going to say, if, then. And so when you heed the Lord's ways, it unpacks, it unlocks a way of living. And so many of us look at the, the benefits in Psalm 37, we're like, that's what I want. Well, then start with the precepts or the commands. Start there and say, okay, 
how do you get there? Just like in Psalm 58, if I were to read to you, I'm sorry, not Psalm 58, Isaiah 58, which is typically known as the chosen fast or the true fast. If you look at the benefits in, in Isaiah 58, oh, wow, they are astounding. I mean, God is your front and rear guard. He is going to cause your descendants to, uh, to change the world around them. I mean, it's so exciting. Like, that's what I want for my life, for my family. Well, what, what does it take to get that? It's an if-then relationship. If you're willing to give up your selfishness, if you're willing to turn outward and consider the needs of this world that are on my heart, then I can bless your life. You see, God is after the success of your life. He is. But the success of our life is not as we would think, just us sitting at port with our battleship all polished. And that's our problem is we have a wrong definition of success that gets handed down to us. And that means, oh, you keep your battleship polished instead of that your battleship is spent to win a war. And so as a result, we tend to not understand the fact that God's saying, hey, I want to do something for you that will make your life count. I want to truly have you inherit my kingdom. I want you to have the fullness of my life. And yet to get that fullness, he says, but I need your life in order for that to happen. So here's my summary of all of those commands. Sure, it may appear that the enemy is one, that he has gotten away with evil and all is lost for the Christians, but don't believe it for a second. Don't give up on that vision that God planted inside you years ago. Go after it. Lift it from off the ground and carry it to me afresh. Commit it to me. Trust me with it. And rest in the fact that whatever is in my care can and will flourish. If you hold on to it, it will wither and die. But if you give it to me, watch what I will do with it. So many of us have been entrusted a vision, a burden, a desire for the life that we live, our marriage, our family, the generation in which we live. We've had our moments where we've seen it. Like I know what God wants to do. And yet what happens with that? Oftentimes we'll fumble it, not because we want to fumble it, but because we see the opposite happening around us. And so we eventually realize that it's down on the ground. It's on the pavement. And we set it down. We gave up on it. We're not running with it like the, the running back with the, the football. Instead, we, we dropped it somewhere. And so basically God's saying, hey, pick that up and trust it to me. This matters. I want you to freshly believe that I am the God who is triumphant. Feed on my faithfulness. Trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. This is the pattern for success. So now we're going to transition into a completely different direction out of the same, it's a 40-verse it's a uh, psalm, but there's 30 clear promises in Psalm 37. Isn't that amazing? There's only 20 uh, precepts or what I'm calling uh, commands. But 30 promises, and these are doozies. These are, this is what we desire in our life, which is why we need to remember that if we're holding on, if we're gripping our life as if it's ours, and we're not willing to relinquish it, we lose all of this. The way that we get the strength of heaven in our life is by letting go of our life. 
unless that corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. So promise number one, he shall give you the desires of your heart. Promise number two, he shall bring it to pass. Promise number three, he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light. Promise number four, he shall bring forth your justice as the noonday. Promise number five, you shall inherit the earth. Promise number six, you shall delight yourself in the abundance of peace. Promise number seven, the Lord will uphold you. Promise number eight, your inheritance shall be forever. Number nine, you shall not be ashamed in the evil time. There are so many things in here that I want you to recognize are for right now in history. Where you think, because if, if you listen to any conspiracy theorist out there, if you listen to the news even once, especially even a conservative news network, they have a lot of doom and gloom coming right now. I mean, it's coming down the pipe and it's coming fast. And if you want to hold yourself together, it's really difficult. You're like, okay, all right, how's my gold, my investment in gold right now? I mean, we have all of this pressure that you solve your life and you prepare for the day of evil. And God looks in and he says, you want to prepare for the day of evil? Read Psalm 37. Trust in me. Do not fret because of evildoers. Delight yourself in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. That doesn't sound like a very good insurance policy right there, or is it? I'm not saying that you shouldn't invest in gold, okay? I'm not saying that. But I am saying you should invest in God. You see, if you're investing in gold and not in God, you have a serious problem in the day of evil. Gold is not your savior. And if you put your salvific confidence in gold, it will fail you. I know some of you are like, gold will never fail us. Gold will fail us. Only God is actually able to sustain us in the day of evil. And guess what? There's a promise. You shall not be ashamed in the day of evil. Promise number 10, you will be satisfied in the days of of famine. You ever had that thought, like, what do I do for my family if suddenly I can't buy anything? Well, that's a famine for us as believers. If you've ever studied what happens in the book of Revelation, there's some dark things, right? It's like, well, what am I supposed to do as a provider for my home? You need to make sure you have a capital P provider for your home known as Jehovah Jireh. It's very, very important. And if you commit your way to the Lord, if you trust in the Lord, if you do not fret what the evildoer is doing, if you rest in the Lord, you will be satisfied in the day of famine. It's a promise. Promise number 11, your steps will be ordered by the Lord. Promise number 12, the Lord will delight in your way. Isn't that a fascinating way of saying it? The Lord will delight in your way? He's excited about your path when you are doing it his way. Promise number 13, though you fall, you shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholds you. Promise number 14, you will not be forsaken. Promise number 15, your descendants will not beg for their bread. That's a, that's a tough one. For us as fathers, it's difficult going through a time where we feel like, how do I help my kids? How do I preserve them from this? Psalm 37. Commit your way to the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Trust also in the Lord. Feed on his faithfulness. That's the greatest gift you can give to your children. Because there's a guarantee that your children will not beg for their bread. God will care for your children if you care for him. Promise number 16, your descendants will be blessed. See, right there. 
Promise number 17, you will be preserved forever. Promise number 18, you will dwell in the land forever. Promise number 19, your mouth will speak wisdom. Number 20, your tongue will talk of justice. 21, the law of your God will be in your heart. Number 22, none of your steps shall slide. Promise number 23, you shall inherit the land. And that's two different verses. Seems like these things seem to say the same thing over and over again, right? Number 24, when the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. Number 25, your future is peace. Number 26, your salvation is from the Lord. Number 27, the Lord will be your strength in the time of trouble. You ever notice that we have a tendency to anticipate a time of trouble? And oftentimes, our vision of the time of trouble is absent the peace of God. You ever had realized that? It's usually like people are running around in our vision. It's like going, ah, and screaming, it's like, oh no. How many of you envision your future, which could have trouble, and recognize that the Lord will be your strength in it? Do you see that he's there? Is he in your vision of the future? Because if he is, there's nothing to fear. He will be your strength in a time of trouble. It's guaranteed. Promise number 28, the Lord shall help you and deliver you. Number 29, the Lord shall deliver you from the wicked. And finally, promise number 30, the Lord will save you because you trust in him. So Psalm 37 is just obviously something that every one of us needs to spend some time meditating upon. However, it's not that we meditate upon it as if it's just a promise for the ancient Israelites because it was written in ancient times by an ancient king to an ancient people. You could say that. And they were entrusted with these words. However, we are participants in the covenant. We have been grafted into this lineage. This is called the word of God. And we are in Christ. We have access to the promises. We have access to this truth. It is active in us. And it is guaranteed for us as well. So here's my summary of all those great promises. If you hand all that over to me, imagine God speaking this to us. If you hand all that over to me, then this is the result. If you trust me with all your hopes, dreams, resources, time, talents, and relationships, I will work wonders on your behalf. But you need to entrust to me everything. Not just some things, but everything. If you have five loaves and two fish in your lunch pail, then you must entrust me with five loaves and two fish. Kill the fattened calf, not the scrawny diseased one. Don't reason like an American, reason like a Christian. You see, as Americans, we have a tendency to reason differently than as a Christian. I know that sounds very offensive to all of us, right? It's like, what? We think 10% of our life. If we entrust 10% of our life, then you know, God's satisfied. No, God wants 100% of our life. That's how it works. If you want the fullness of the life of Christ, give him all. That does not mean you do not have a discipline of tithing 10%. Tithing and entrusting God with everything you are is different. Tithing is a symbol of the fact that God possesses everything in your life. And you prove it in and how you function with your resource. However, God owns all of it, which doesn't just work in the area of finances. It works in the area of your time. Oh, God, you're gonna, you can have 10% of my life. 
No, he gets 100% of your life. How about, you can have 10% of my marriage. No, he gets 100% of your marriage. God, you can have 10% of my kids. So when I have 10 kids, you get one of them. God gets all of your kids. It all belongs to him. And when you parcel it out and think like an American and say, okay, God, I'll give you this much, you're actually losing the Psalm 37 blessing. God is saying, trust it to me. Rest it all in me. Commit it all to me. And when we do, God's able to give all of himself to us. When we open the gate valve and allow God into our life, it's because we are saying, God, I receive it all. But to have him fill you, what do you have to do? First, empty. To receive all of God, you have to give up all of you. The heavenly inclination. Just a fascinating scripture to see how God thinks towards us. Okay, now we might not be the healthiest right now. The church may not be looking so hot right now. But just look at how God reasons. Matthew 23, 37. This is Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. God has a desire to gather us to himself, to care for us. And yet that statement is haunting, but you were not willing. You see, there is a propensity in all of us to not be willing to give up our life. We can hear a message about giving up our loaves and fish and yet still be possessive of them. If I give up my loaves and fishes, then I don't have them. And yet God wants to work a miracle through your life. He wants to show the world that he is powerful. Why did he give you those loaves and fishes? So that you could entrust them to him. You'll get fed. Don't worry. There's going to be baskets left over. However, you, to be able to see that miracle, have to participate in it. And so as a result, he starts by giving you some loaves and fishes, and then he creates the scenario where they're needed. He says, what do you have there in your lunch pail? Uh, just uh, some loaves and fishes. Uh, <clears throat> could I have those? You see, why did God give you that lunch pail, and why did he fill it with loaves and fishes? It's so that he could use it. And so he will create the scenarios where he will come to you and says, now it's time. The reason we built this battleship, the reason it's here in port, is so that it could be used right now. It does not make any sense to preserve your battleship. And yet, did you know one of the reasons why Gallipoli went south is because the admirals grudgingly utilized their battleships. But once some of them started blowing up, they held off. They did not want to spend these things. They did not want to, what they would say, waste them. Christian history is marked by men and women moving forward. And even when some start blowing up, they keep moving forward. And that's how you win this war. The rich young American. I know in scripture it doesn't call it that, but I'm going to call it that. Uh, you guys remember, he's usually called the rich young ruler, right? And we know the story. And we've heard the story, and oftentimes we don't always identify with the guy. You know, he's just sort of this cocky guy over here, has some good head knowledge of Christianity, but he's not really willing to live it. Come on, he has a battleship, and he's not willing to give it up to the minister of the, the Navy at the very hour it's needed? And yet, how similar is this rich young American to us? And that's the point of it. Being in the Bible is not so that we can clock our tongue at this guy from history past, but so that we can be freshly convicted. Let's look at this story. 
It's just a piece of it. Remember, he, he wants to know what he can do uh, to follow his king, follow Jesus. He seems to really admire Jesus. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Isn't that a great statement in the context of this? Most of us forget that little line. He loved him. Jesus seems to know what makes this guy tick. He seems to know that he's ruled by his possessions, that he really likes his battleship and he keeps it nice and clean. And so Jesus goes after the battleship because Jesus loves him. Why is Jesus asking us for our battleship? Is it because he wants to just make us miserable? That's, that's all an entire theory that many of us tote around in our souls, that God just loves to make us miserable. It's just sort of like a side hobby he has. When in actuality, it's because he loves us. How about that little kid with the, the loaves and fishes? Why did he ask for that? Does he, does he not like that kid? It's like, hey, give me your lunch, kid. No, it's, could I have that, oh little one? Because you have been entrusted with something that can change the world, but can only change the world when it is given to me. You see, it's because he loves that little guy. He's going to care for that little guy, but he knows that that little guy has to entrust the little he has. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. I call that the rich young American. I think all of us are susceptible to looking at this scripture and saying, well, yeah, that doesn't really apply to me. When in actuality, I think it does apply to all of us, and it needs to be absorbed. Like somehow we need to get it through our thick American psyche to recognize that, yes, we too are called to live out the ancient version of Christianity, not some present tense modern version. It's like, well, in the modern version, we don't look at that the same way. And now I'm not saying that the commission to all of us is to take everything that's in your bank account and just dump it out today that that is good stewardship. Jesus, when he comes to you, he doesn't say sink your battleship. He says, take your battleship and do with it what I lead you to do. And he could lead every one of those battleships in a different direction. There's a lot of ocean water out there. It's not always the same direction that he leads it, but who's in control of the battleship? And that's what matters. You were an admiral over a battleship and you've spent years polishing it, keeping it doctrinally correct and pure, and it's a good battleship. But why did God give you that truth? Why did he teach you how to keep it clean? Why has he trained you how to keep your sailors in good order? It's so that when he needs it, you're ready to be sent. And this is a moment where this guy is being sent, if you want to say it that way. His battleship is being required. And he cannot give it up. His battleship is the one thing he can't let go of. And for each of us, there oftentimes is something like that in our life. Like a battleship for you, you're like, oh, I'll spend it right now. Because it means nothing to you. A battleship, my illustration of a battleship is like, well, I would give up my battleship. Yeah, but what is your real battleship in your life? What has been in port in your life that if God were to call on it and ask for that right now, that it would be a difficult challenge for your soul to relinquish it. For me, you know what it was? If you go way back 
30 years, it was relationships with the opposite sex. I wanted to be married. Now, some of you that are single are like, why did I come to this sermon? Oh, and yet in every season of our life, we have things like that. We're just like, well, God, as long as I'm married, I'll, uh, you know, I'll be satisfied. Well, God, as long as, you know, so I'm like beginning to take that area over here. And then he says, commit your way to me. Trust also in me. Rest in the Lord. Oh, well, God, what, you may do something really wild if I give you my loaves and fishes here. Yeah, I'll do something miraculous. You can call it wild, Eric, but it's amazing. If you will simply entrust it to me. God wins his battles. He doesn't waste his battleships. But we oftentimes, as the admirals, will hold on to our battleships because we're afraid that they will be wasted. The town of Bethlehem. So the town of Bethlehem is prophesied to be the place. This is where he's going to come forth from, right? So if you're the town of Bethlehem, what's, what's really your purpose? It's not just to buy and sell and to build some inns and make some money off your hotel system. What is it there for? That when the Son of Man comes, you're ready to house him. Think about it. This is like their day. This is what it's all about. This is their purpose, and they blow it. And so all of us could cluck our tongues at Bethlehem and go, come on, guys. Isn't it clear that you have one purpose? The whole reason you're there is to be a setup as the home, the birthplace of the king of kings. What a privilege. And you thrust him into a stable? Come on, guys. He has to be laid in a manger, a feeding trough? That's not the way you treat your king. Well, let's take a lesson from Bethlehem then. What is the reason you're here? What is your purpose in life? It's so that the Son of God could be born inside of you. Make sure you don't stick him in the manger. Make sure you give him the prized room of your soul. He deserves access to the whole thing, the control system. Luke 2, 7, she, speaking of Mary, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So I'm going to give you a story. It's, it's, it's all in this sort of flow of Mark 10, where the rich young ruler is. And then we also have this story. And I'm going to ask the question, what if this was us? This guy owns a cult. And it's, you know, it, it, maybe his prize cult, maybe he has a name for it, like Barney. You know, his, his cult is named Barney. He loves Barney. And he goes out and feeds Barney uh, every day and pets Barney and, you know, shares his deepest secrets with Barney. And Barney listens and, you know, he's chowing down on his... What do uh, donkeys eat? Like hay? Uh, he's chomping down on his hay, and Barney listens. And so Barney and, and you are connected deeply. And then this story happens. Just, just listen. This is, this is fascinating. Mark 11, 2 through 6. Jesus said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood by there said to them, now this is you and me, we're standing by, right? This is our colt. And said, what are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, which is what, was, what were they supposed to say? The Lord has need of it. So they let them go. Oops. Oh, you guys didn't see that. Now, you have a cult named Barney. 
You love that cult. And then suddenly Jesus requests your cult. What do you think the purpose of that cult was? Why did he entrust you with that cult? It's so that he could use it. It doesn't make any sense to be Bethlehem and to turn away Mary and Joseph. That doesn't make any sense, right? Or how about to be the one that has the cult for the triumphal entry? And Jesus is going to sit on the the back of the cult, be the first one to ride it. Oh, it's an amazing privilege. But when that day comes, are you going to let him have it? You see, the key to letting Jesus have it in that day is that you've let him have it in the days before it. You don't want to come down to the moment and need to make the decision with your loaves and fishes. You don't want to come down to the moment and make your decision with the cult. You don't want to come down to the moment and make your decision with your battleship. You want to make your decision now. Whose battleship is it? Yes, you've been put in charge of it, but you don't own it. It's not actually yours. Whose cult is that? Whose loaves and fishes are those? You see, when you know the answer to that, then your answer ends up being the correct one. Isn't it funny that we have the rich young ruler, then we have this story. We have these stories that are showing the difference between relinquishment and holding on. And God intended us to be part of his story. However, we need to allow the things that he's put us over, the ships that he has made us admiral over, to be his. And it's not a waste for you to keep it clean and to keep your sailors in order. It is not a waste to keep it pristine. However, it is a waste to not allow the minister of the Navy to have access to it in the day of battle. The empty fig tree. Why was that fig tree even there? I mean, the creator of the universe shows up on earth and there's a fig tree and it's there and it's supposed to satisfy him. Could you imagine out of all the fig trees in all of history, not many have been plucked by the son of God. And yet this fig tree at a key moment when Jesus is hungry has the opportunity but was unwilling to bear fruit for him. And so, as a result, I think you guys know the story. It's not necessarily a good one for the fig tree. Mark 11, 12 through 14, Jesus was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Before Jesus gets to that cult, to those loaves and fishes, Before he gets to your battleship moment, how about right now we just decide if we're a fig tree, we're bearing fruit for King Jesus. Because if he's hungry, I want him to have whatever I have. I'm not going to be possessive with my fruit, keep all the sap inside of me and say, no, I'm not going to bear fruit for Jesus. I want to give it all for Jesus. Spend your sap. Give it all. Because then you will satisfy the creator and he will delight in your way. And you will find that your life will be a part of the miracle story. The admirals and their ships at Gallipoli. I mean, it's almost embarrassing to think about these admirals now that I'm talking about them all these years later. I mean, how ridiculous is it to be the admiral of a ship and to hesitate to allow the minister of war to use it? And you know what they thought? They thought, he's a politician because he was, right? 
He doesn't understand. He doesn't have the love that I have for the ship. And so he, in his calloused manner, is asking me to spend something that is like part of me in an idiotic venture through the Straits of Turkey. You've got to be kidding me. I'm not going to waste my ship in that way. And how many of us were just described in our inner soul discussions when we think about God saying, I want it all. I want your life. You know how many of us go, well, he doesn't, he can't actually mean that. No, I'm sure he doesn't mean that. What do you think the rich young ruler's thinking? Oh, I love this Jesus guy. Really, I'm going to go talk to him. And Jesus and him, they're sort of hitting it off. He says, there's one more thing you need to do. You need to sell all and give it to the poor. Now, if Jesus said that to you today, that is such an extreme statement that we all would admit it to. Being Americans, we've all classified that as, you know, metaphoric or something. It's not actually real. You wouldn't really ever do that. Or would you? The key for us is not to be American Christians, but to be Christian Christians, which means everything we have belongs to him. Starting today, because we don't want to be the Bethlehem that turns away Mary and Joseph. We don't want to be the rich young ruler that is saddened and walks away unwilling to give our life and to give our wealth, to give our resources to the king. Send out your battleships into the Turkish Straits. So that's our commission. Send out your battleship. Jesus is coming to us. He's the minister of the Navy. He's the one that is requisitioning this ship. He says, send it. He says, go. Go into all the world. <laughs> I mean, he's already sent us into the Turkish Straits, right? He has unique commands for each of us as ships, but he's sending us. And so when those disciples come up to us and ask for our cult, what's our response? Because that's a possession. That's a valuable thing, a commodity in our life, but it's also a relational connection there. Barney, I mean, you've been trusted with all your secrets. You could share them as he's walking down the road. Ah, don't take Barney. God, here's Barney. Here's my battleship. Here's my loaves. Here's my fishes. Here's my spouse. Here's my children. Here's my future. Here's my security. Here's my comforts. Here's my wealth. You can fill in the blank because there's a lot of things that can go in that blank. Who owns it? Who does it belong to? Are you ready to follow him wherever he leads? So when you give that, there's 30 promises in Psalm 37. I'm just going to read these through real quick. He shall give you the desires of your heart when you relinquish that battleship. He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light. He shall bring forth your justice as the noonday. Untie that cult. Let them have it. You shall inherit the earth. You shall delight yourself in the abundance of peace. The Lord will uphold you. Give those loaves and fishes. Your inheritance shall be forever. You shall not be ashamed in the evil time. You will be satisfied in the days of famine. Your steps will be ordered by the Lord. You, you, the Lord will delight in your way. And when he says, sell all you have and give to the poor, Though you fall, you shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholds you. You will not be forsaken. Your descendants will not beg for their bread. Your descendants will be blessed. You will be preserved forever. You will dwell in the land forever. 
Your mouth will speak wisdom. Your tongue will talk of justice. The law of your God will be in your heart. None of your steps shall slide. You shall inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. Your future is peace. Your salvation is from the Lord. The Lord will be your strength in the time of trouble. The Lord shall help you and deliver you. The Lord shall deliver you from the wicked. The Lord will save you because you trust in him. Father, it is our bent to cling, to cling to things of this earth, to cling to our wealth, our resource, to cling to our talents, our abilities, to cling to our relationships, to cling to our dreams and desires. But Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to shift, how to let go of the things of this earth and take that same grip and hold on to you and to trust you and to say, I give it all away so that I can have my king and trusting that in my king is everything that satisfies me. Lord, we want to be those that let go of this world and hold on to you for that is what we have been built for, designed for. That is our purpose. Lord, we love you. And I pray that this message would impact and change us. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.